Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing paediatric cardiology in the emergency department. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines are um, correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. My name's uh, Jamie, Uh, I'm teaching fellows in emergency medicine and I'm delighted that my favourite paediatrician in the world, uh, Dr. (laughs) Colin Gilhooley, has come to join me. Welcome back, Colin. Thank you very much for having me, Jamie. Pleasure to be here. Brilliant. Um, I'm on Twitter at McDreamy. I'm not on Twitter, uh, despite your protestations at my lack of uh, technological know-how. Oh dear. Uh, still a registrar, but still a registrar. CCT. CCT in February, so not too far away now. Excellent. Uh, just remember us when you're, you know, one of the big Oh, players. how could I forget you, Jamie? How could I forget you? Uh, so in this episode, we're going to take a look at uh, paediatric cardiology in the emergency department. So we're probably not going to go too in-depth about the pathophysiology because we haven't really got the time. Yeah. Focusing more on what it is like to see these patients yeah. coming into the emergency department. Um, so, I suppose first, Colin, is this something you encounter a lot in your day-to-day job? Um, so I guess it's not something you see day-to-day, but it's always something that I have in the back of my mind. I've seen enough of it, uh, and I've seen it frequently enough, uh, to know that it's out there and exists, and you need to be prepared for these children when they come in. Um, and it always seems like it's very scary and very worrying, um, but congenital heart disease in childhood is reasonably common as a group. Uh, I guess what we're talking about today, though, is those children who come into the emergency department reasonably or very unwell, uh, and it's about how how you know how to manage and treat them in the first instance and where to go to get support. Brilliant. Uh, so we're going to start really looking at um, the age of our child presenting. Yeah. So if we start with the newborn, the first few weeks of life. Yeah, so I think in the first few days of life, or days um, of life you can consider that there's going to be conditions that are more common at that period. And so in the first two days, you've got the closure of the, the PDA, the patent ductus arteriosus, which I'm sure you remember from medical school, even if you don't remember too much about it now. And as that close, any condition where there is a duct-dependent lesion, i.e. the PDA is required for effective circulation of blood, and that might be oxygenation or delivery to the systemic circulation. Closure of that will will present in a very acutely unwell uh, neonate, so in the first few days of life normally. So the duct physiologically closes usually in most of it at about 24 hours of age. So that tells you that the child's likely to present reasonably soon after that, certainly within 48 hours normally normally Um, and it's important to understand why these conditions occur and so there's going to be two reasons one is that um, there's not enough flow to the lungs and so the PDA is stealing some flow across into the pulmonary circulation from the systemic circulation or that the systemic circulation doesn't have enough blood flowing and therefore the PDA is stealing some blood from the pulmonary circulation Um, And so just to put that into perspective about what what that might mean, if you had something like pulmonary atresia, uh, where either the valve or the area around it or the uh, main pulmonary artery is very small, Mm. you're not going to have enough blood flow to the lungs. And therefore what happens is that blood flows from the aorta through the PDA uh, into the the pulmonary arteries and that's where you're getting some blood flow to go to the lungs. and it's important to note that as soon as that closes, you have no blood flow to the lungs, you're obviously going to get very sick very fast. 
and the other side of that uh, would be something like a transposition of the great arteries um, where all your blood flows out of your pulmonary trunk gets oxygenated but unfortunately heads back to the right side of the heart and so it just keeps going around the lungs and then the deoxygenated blood keeps going systemically and coming back to the left side of the heart and so you've got a problem there and so what your PDA allows is it allows some mixing of the blood there so that some oxygenated blood in the pulmonary circulation can come across. So that's just an example of those two things. Um, there are lots of other <coughs> conditions that can cause it but probably today we should concentrate on what you do mm. and how you spot these children and then what to do from there. Mm. So I think this comes in and it comes into a separate talk uh, which will be available via podcast onto the approach to the incredibly unwell neonate or the collapsed neonate. Um, so it's worth taking Good a look plug. at that podcast. Well done. Thank you. Um, but for this one, you're looking at a child who's going to be hypoxic. They are going to be cyanosed um, and they are going to be trying to compensate for that. So they're likely to be tachycardic, they're likely to be tachypnic um, and they are likely to be very lethargic and, t and tired. Um, of course, if it's quite acute, if you've got them quite quickly, they might actually just be hypoxic and very upset and crying and, and very irritable. But it's important to get that saturations probe on uh, and have a look. And so whenever you're thinking about duct-dependent lesions, a very useful thing to be able to do is to measure the sats in the right arm and then measure them in one of the other limbs in the body. And if there's a significant difference between the two, that can be a clue uh, to the presence and the other thing is measuring blood pressures in all the limbs. And again, you're looking for a significant difference between the right arm and the other limbs. Okay, and that would be a clue that you might have a left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, like something like a coarctation of the aorta. It's important in these children to be aware that at this day, at two days of age, you do need to consider other diagnosis always, um, but getting, getting an idea of saturations and blood pressures is incredibly helpful. And so what's your next step then? So if so you've got a cyanose baby making a lot of effort, yeah. um, you know, um, and you've spotted this SATS difference, this blood pressure difference, what's the next step? So the next step uh, is to obviously follow an ABC approach, as you would for anything um, with APLS. Um, the thing of note in these children is just to, to be aware of oxygen, and that's not to be scared of oxygen, it's to be aware of oxygen. So oxygen closes your PDA, okay? Uh, and as you increase oxygenation, the PDA is more likely to close. So if they have this duct-dependent lesion, oxygen has the potential to make it worse. I would caution you though that these children are incredibly hypoxic, i.e. their saturations can be very low or unrecordable sometimes. And so they do still need oxygen to protect their heart, to get their heart to beat and for their brain. Um, so it, it's not a never give them oxygen, it's be, be aware of it and titrate their saturations up to around 75, 80%, something like that. Um, of course, it's sometimes useful when you're considering whether it's cardiac or not. Um, you can give them a high flow oxygen and see if you can get their saturations to 100%. So in, those, in these situations, it's incredibly unlikely that you'd be able to do so if it was cardiac. Mm. So uh, a hyper-oxygenation test is something that can be useful where you give them uh, 15 litres of oxygen for five minutes or so, and if their saturations go up to 100%, tells you that it's less likely it's cardiac. If you can't get their oxygen levels up, then it's a good indicator that it is. Yeah. So in these children, they're obviously incredibly unwell, but let's say they have got a duct-dependent lesion, then the key thing is to give them something that's gonna keep their, their duct open. Uh, and in that instance, it's prostin, 
Okay, and prostin is a drug um, that has become very useful, uh, but it's important to know what the side effects are. And so the main two side effects are that it can lower your blood pressure mm. and that it can cause you to be apneic. Uh, most trusts will have a protocol for how you start prostin and how you give it. Um, and I think if you're getting to the stage where you've got this, it's also important that you're getting someone to get on the phone to a paediatric cardiologist to give you some advice. And ideally, for them to be able to get you an echo uh, as quickly as possible. So, for instance, in Nottingham, uh, we don't do paediatric surgery here, but we do have uh, paediatricians with interest in cardiology who are on call, and there's always someone on call uh, for you to, to speak to. Uh, and our um, cardiology techs are also fantastic, and so if you really do have an acutely unwell child, it is possible to get an echo at any time of day for children in our trust. Um, so with prostin, um, you normally start it at around 20 nanograms. Um, so that's nanograms, and that's important. You don't prescribe micrograms. So it's an incredibly low dose. There's advice on how to draw it up, uh, and it's worth knowing where it is. So for us, it's in our rhesus uh, drug cupboard in the emergency department, and it's easy to get a hold of if you need it. Worth knowing, as I say, what the protocol is for drawing it up. So for those of you working in Nottingham, it's worth having a look at that. It's available on the internet. Uh, and then when you start it, you need to know what the two potential side effects are because you've already got someone who's incredibly cardiovascularly unstable. You're about to give them a drug that might make them apneic, i.e. which will then make them more hypoxic. And you are also run the risk of potentially lowering their blood pressure. Mm. So from that point of view, you need to be prepared for these events. So in your ABC approach, whilst you might not want to intubate the child immediately when you start prostin, you need to have someone there who's able to do so efficiently and effectively should you need to. Um, and so when starting prostin, um, I think then the key point is you need to watch very carefully and see if they show signs of an improvement. So do their oxygen saturations come up? Does their heart rate come down? Does their work of breathing or their uh, tachypnea start to settle a little bit? And they'd be all some clinical indicators that things were getting better. And whilst doing that, as I say, I think it's important that you're getting specialist care to this child as quickly as possible. If the child is incredibly unwell, um, then obviously PICU uh, should be informed and should be being asked to review the child. Uh, and from that point of view, something that can be useful is a gas. Uh, mm. And so you could do a, a venous blood gas uh, in this situation would be fine. And that's most of what we use in, in children. Um, and what you're looking for there is an acidosis to show pure tissue oxygenation. So you're going to have a lactic acidosis, uh, which is usually quite significant. Um, and depending on the type of lesion, there may be also some failure of CO2 clearance. So you may have a mixed acidosis as opposed to just a metabolic acidosis. Mm. Um, hopefully, though, when you give them prostin, that shows that they've improved. Um, but it's only going to buy them a lifeline for a short period of time. And so these children need to be being a cardiac center as quickly as possible. And so if they do truly have a duct-dependent lesion, then that is a, a time-critical transfer. And so they need to be transferred to the cardiac center as quickly as possible. Uh, and the reason for that is, um, in most situations, um, what can be done is uh, an atrial balloon septostomy. So you, um, do a, you go up the femoral vein into the right side of the heart, make a hole in the atrial, atrial septum, and then balloon dilate it. So essentially you allow mixing of the blood at the atrial level. So if there is tissue oxygenation at some point, then you improve that and allow it to get to both sides of the heart. And that would be the first step in managing them acutely. 
as I say, that's not something we do here in Nottingham, so they'd have to go to, to Leicester, uh, would be our closest cardiac centre. Um, so it's really, it's with an A&E, is to identify it. To identify it, to identify it. Correct. And to get the prostin. Get the prostin and get it running and know what the side effects of starting it are and be prepared for them um, so that you are able to, to manage that child and you're being proactive rather than reactive. Mm. Okay. So we've looked at the first few days of life. How about further on? So yeah, further so on in the child's life. So I guess the next time that children often present is around four to six weeks of age. Uh, and as we all know, when children are born and they take that first breath in, their pulmonary pressures drop, which increases the blood flow to the lungs. But over that first kind of four, five, six weeks, the pulmonary pressures continue to drop and they reach something very close to, or at adult levels at around kind of four to six weeks of age. And therefore that's the time, if you have anything that allows blood to shunt from the left side of the heart to the right, um, that you're gonna have maximum flow across those areas. So we're talking about significant atrial septal defects, ASDs, ventricular septal defects, VSDs, uh, and any other communications at other levels. Um, that might include an AVSD, where you've got uh, problems with the atrioventricular septal defect, so both of them, and there's often valve involvement with those. Uh, and with these conditions, you'd be expected to see signs of right heart failure. Okay? Uh, and the signs of right heart failure in a six-week-old are exactly the same as those of an adult. So you've got pulmonary overload, um, so you get increased work of breathing, maybe crackles throughout the chest, you get uh, an enlarged liver, uh, you get tachycardia. Uh, the only good thing that adults don't necessarily have that children do is failure to thrive. Uh, and by that, I mean the failure to gain weight over that period. Mm. And the reason for that is obviously if they're having to use increased amounts of energy uh, for their cardiac workload, um, then they are, they are likely to use that energy for their heart rather than for growth. And so you find that they don't gain weight as expected and they start to fall through the centiles. So all the paediatricians out there will be very familiar with centile charts uh, for weight. Uh, it might be something that's not seen as much in the emergency department, but certainly in our paediatric emergency department, we have centile charts uh, for boys and girls of different ages where you can look. Uh, and in the red book uh, that all children are given when they're born, they will be plotted on that centile chart at birth and they will be given a number. So whether that's the 25th centile or the 50th centile. And any child that drops through two of those centiles, i.e. goes from the 50th to the 25th and then the 9th, that would indicate that they've got failure to thrive and mm. they, would be, they should be investigated for that anyway. But in the presence of increased work of breathing, an enlarged liver, a tachycardia, a murmur when you listen to them, then you should consider that they've got a left to right shunt mm. and that they would need uh, to be investigated. In the emergency department, if you were to see one of these ch children, uh, rather than just doing um, an echo straight away, there are things that can help you, um, because most people wouldn't be very familiar with pediatric, pediatric echo in ED. So do the basics, do a good clinical examination, listen for a murmur, ascertain where the murmur's loudest, because that will give you an indication of what the condition is. Know where it radiates to, because that will give you an indication of where it is and then do fall in blood pressures, do pre and post ductal saturations that we talked about earlier, so in the right arm plus in one of the other limbs, get an ECG and do a chest x-ray to look at the cardiac silhouette. Okay? These are similar things that you would do if an adult came in, 
And so you just treat them exactly the same, but remember that the conditions that they have will be slightly different. From an ED perspective, the roles here are to identify that it's a cardiac lesion, even if you don't identify exactly which one, and then understand and make sure the patient is stable. Okay, So they're likely to be fluid overloaded at this kind of age. Um, so whilst I'm sure most of you wouldn't consider starting them on diuretics, but would happily start an adult on diuretics, it's worth speaking to the paediatricians or the paediatric cardiologist who's on call to talk about these kind of things. And in the first instance, they'll probably, if the child's reasonably stable, be happy to get an echo. Uh, if the child's cardiovascularly unstable, then obviously PICU should be called. And then they can think about uh, patient management in that kind of role. But at this kind of age, I'd say that do those basic investigations. So fall in blood pressures, pre and postdoctoral SATs, an ECG and a chest x-ray will be useful to get the diagnosis. And then you can refer on from there. Brilliant. And um, so we've, we've looked at the first few days, we've looked at you know, four, six weeks down the line. What's the next sort of milestone? So I think the next milestone after that is every child and always be considering it. So yeah. hopefully most um, children with significant congenital heart disease will be picked up by that period. Yeah. So we've got great antenatal scanning nowadays. Um, Duct-dependent lesions patients will present early and these left to right shunts, if they're significant, will normally present around four to six weeks. Um, but may present slightly later. So it's just that thinking about it all the time, you know. Um, does, does this child have signs that they are failing to thrive beyond that, that they're using uh, their energy for their cardiac work as opposed to for growth? And are there any signs when you listen to them? So every time you're listening to a child you see in the emergency department for whatever reason, make sure you're saying, does this child have a murmur? Do I need to think about it? Mm. For me, I make sure I examine the femorals of every single child I see because there will be children out there with left ventricular outflow tract obstructions like coarctation of the aorta. And so just by constantly doing it, you, can, you, you will pick these children up. Um, but after and that... What, do you, what will you find in the femorals then in those so patients? So with the left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, you'll find that the femorals are actually very difficult or you're unable to feel them. Okay? And if they're very hard to feel or, or you can't feel them at all, then that that points to there be a problem in the left ventricular outflow tract. Uh, and so with those children, it's worth then doing their fall in blood pressures like we talked about before on their pre and postdoctoral SATs and speaking to someone about the best way to follow them up, uh, which is probably with an echo. And if they're reasonably well, that can probably be done as an outpatient. But something you can do in the emergency department is, is to always get an ECG. Mm. And if you've got the ECG there, you, you're looking for left ventricular hypertrophy showing that the left side of the heart is having to work to overcome that obstruction. Uh, and if they do have a significant obstruction, you'll often find that the blood pressure in the right arm is significantly elevated compared to the rest and significantly elevated for age. Um, so unlike in adults, where there is one blood, pr blood pressure for all, blood pressure varies with age, but there are centile charts uh, which you can access online for different ages and for different sexes, uh, which can be useful. Uh, to have an idea if you think it's markedly elevated. The thing we haven't talked about here is things that maybe progress or you aren't born with, so your cardiomyopathies, uh, which can often present later in life, at any age really. Um, so that can be a few years um, of age or right up to teenage years. 
and certainly in adults, uh, we're all aware that they're hokum and things like that are a, a disease that's a worry. Um, but these are things that happen in children, and, and the only way to think about them is to be aware of them and to mm. think, does this history fit with someone who's starting to develop heart failure? Mm. Have they got sudden episodes of collapse that aren't explained? Mm. Uh, are they running around and getting chest pain? Are they running around and no longer able to do the things that they mm. would normally to do? And in those children, you'd investigate them in a similar way to adults. You know, see them, make sure they're stable in the emergency department, get an ECG. And if they've got any red flag symptoms, signs, or or um, on their ECG there's any red flags, then speak to someone about it and make sure they've got follow-up arranged. Mm. Um, I don't want to go too much into cardiomyopathies because it's quite a large topic uh, and I probably don't understand it as well as some others, so I'd probably leave it to them to talk about the different <laughs> types and how you pick them up. Um, but certainly different types show different ECG changes, so there are ways to spot them. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think they're the main things. So the first few days of life with the duct-dependent lesion mm four to six weeks when the pulmonary pressures drop to adult levels mm. and then always be thinking about it because there are some yeah. children out there who have these diseases so just be aware and have a structured approach to every child that you see. And there's also um, maybe not structural but um, uh, arrhythmic conditions, Wolf yeah. Parkinson White, Brugada yeah. just off the top of my head. That Absolutely and they're out there so I think in terms of arrhythmias the most common arrhythmia in childhood is actually just SVT. Yeah. Uh, and that's you know something that I think most people are comfortable managing uh, and having an idea of. So I think you know um, in adults uh, the management of it in terms of of how you revert people has changed slightly. So you know we've got uh, the nice study recently where you you blow into a syringe and you invert them to put them head up. The modified valsalva, yeah. Yeah, and that's worked beautifully. Um, and obviously that study's never been done in children, um, and it depends on the age of the child. Um, but let's talk about whether we do do that study in children to see whether it is a, as effective. Um, so that's a kind of watch this space at the mm. moment. Um, and I think it's something that uh, I've certainly in teenagers seen, seen work and be incredibly effective. Mm. Um, in, outside of SVT, looking for evidence of pre-excitation on ECG, so the delta waves of Wolf, Parkinson, White, but also looking at that PR interval. And then the other thing is obviously prolonged QTC. Uh, so any child with a syncopal episode, uh, any child with collapse, um, should be having an ECG done on presentation to the emergency department. It should be reviewed, and these are the things you should be looking for. Mm. If you have any evidence of that, you should be discussing it with the cardiologist. Mm. Um, and I think outside of that, if there are any red flags in the history, so collapse while playing sport, uh, then they're ones who are obviously at high risk, just like adults, and they, mm. should, be, they mm. should probably be brought in in the paediatric setting um, for them to be reviewed uh, and have follow-up arranged. So it's all very much the same as the adults, so Absolutely. your exertional angina, exertional syncope, exertional shorts of breath that's out yep. of keeping, or syncope with no prodrome, yep. I was stood, next thing yep. they're flat on the floor, yep. yeah, so all of that. And um, So it's also a very good family history, has anything happened to their siblings, older siblings, Absolutely. and hopefully then if something is found, yep. screening would take place, Absolutely. but you know, obviously never take anything for granted in this game. Absolutely, I think that's really important is that we, we make sure we don't miss these uh, and we do our best to try and spot them. Yeah, I think that failure to thrive thing you mentioned is very important. Um, as listeners will know, I was at SMAC the other month and there was a very good talk on paediatric cardiology yep. uh, and um, the speaker whose name completely forgets me but I'll put it on the website um, um, 
was talking about late presentations mm -hmm. and failure to thrive was in every single one. Yeah. Just something was never right. They were considered yeah. lazy or tired. They were investigated yeah. for uh, celiac disease, other things. Yeah. Uh, and then quite, you know, I think there was a six-year-old just by chance had an x-ray for something, chest x-ray for something else, and the doctor went, well, that's a big heart, yeah. and had an echo and was found to have, I think it was hyperplastic uh, left heart or something, but it was found out that way, completely yeah. coincidentally, and failure to thrive was always there. Just yeah. was never quite right, never kept up with the other kids. And I think that's why, you know, um, all children that fall through Sue 10 through two centiles should be preferred for a paediatric assessment. So whether you're a GP working in the emergency department, working in an urgent care centre, falling through two centiles requires a referral mm. and they have to be set up and they have to be reviewed and they have to be investigated. Anything else, Colin? No, I think that's it for... for we've, we've tackled cardiology in the emergency department. That's brilliant. So I think first few days, four, six weeks, and then any time. And then always be aware. Always be aware and take that really good history. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you. That was the Paediatric Cardiology in the Emergency Department podcast. You can find a blog entry in this podcast at uh, takeorally.com. Takeorally is also um, on Facebook and Twitter where you can find us. For education research opportunities in emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can get more information and find finding NUH Dream at both Facebook and Twitter.